Good morning. Good to have this opportunity to open God's word with you today. This hymn that we just sang is a wonderful hymn expressing the vast subject of the love of God. It's uh, the third verse in particular that is probably the oldest hymn that's in a hymn book that you'll find under your chair. I could be wrong. I could stand to be corrected, but I, I think it's it's probably the oldest hymn that we sing, almost a thousand years old. Wonderful story behind the hymn and how it came to be. Uh, the first two verses were written more recently, about 100 years ago. Um, but there was some uh, question about the origin of this third verse that elegant, eloquently speaks about God's great love, the magnitude of God's love. Tremendous words. The Bible tells us much about love. Tells us much about God's love. And the Apostle John in particular is the Apostle who writes about love. In his epistles and in his gospel, he has much to say about love. He teaches us much about God's love. About God's love for us. About God's love for his son. About the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for us and his love for his father. There is much there about how we ought to love God. All of these things are vast subjects. We couldn't possibly begin even to plumb the depths of the magnitude of this great subject of God's love. This morning, what I'd like to do with you is look into John's gospel a little bit and look at some of the things John has about love, but we're not going to be looking particularly at God's love for us or our love for God, but I want to draw your attention to seven places in the Gospel of John where John brings to our attention what I'm going to call other loves. Loves other than our love for God or God's love to us, but seven other loves that can impact the hearts of, of men and women around the world. These are things that some, some, are, some of these are kind of nefarious, actually. They're egregious. Others, quite noble. They range. They vary across the scale. But there are seven things that God, that John brings to our attention that are other loves. Each of them presents for us a contrast uh, that helps to accentuate the point that he is making. And we'll look at these seven loves and these seven contrasts as we proceed. But before we do, I'm going to ask, we pause this once again and ask for God's help in this. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together today. As we open your word, we need your help to understand it clearly and to cause it to sink into our minds and into our hearts. We pray that we might think about what you have for us today, that it would resonate in our, in our hearts and remain with us in time to come. Help us to embrace your word and to understand it clearly and rightly. We need your help in this, and we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before I begin speaking about this subject, I just want to ask you if you're reading God's word. I hope that you are. 
I hope that you're reading God's word regularly, faithfully. Uh, it's a practice that I believe every Christian should be engaged in. I, I would like to encourage you to read God's word every day. And uh, if, you, if you're doing that, that's great. If you're not doing that, I'd, I'd just like to encourage you a little more by providing you a, a little Bible reading schedule. It's something, I, a little retirement project that I worked on. There's lots of Bible reading schedules out there. But here's one that you could take, and it gives you a little section from the Old Testament, a little section from the New Testament, and a little bit of poetry from the Psalms or the Proverbs each day. And I know I've spoken to a number of you about this little schedule, but if you don't have a regular Bible reading schedule, I encourage you to do that. You can use this plan or some other. If you'd like one of these, I'd be happy to provide one to you after the service if you want to see me. It goes more or less chronologically through the Old Testament. And um, I hope it would be an encouragement to some. Let's think for a few minutes about seven other loves. Turn with me, please, first to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. The Lord speaks here to Nicodemus. And uh, as he's speaking to Nicodemus, let's pick up the text in verse 18. Here we read, he who believes in him, that is in the son, Jesus Christ himself is speaking, he's referring to himself. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Men love darkness rather than light. The first other love that John presents to us is this, the love of darkness. And it's a sad statement on our nature of humanity. When I was about eight years old, I think I was eight, maybe seven, I had a little friend over from the neighborhood, and we were playing down in the rec room in the basement, my parents' home in Calgary, and uh, having a good time with my friend. And I was attracted in particular to a little flame that was a pilot light burning in a basement heater that my dad had installed in the finished rec room. If you look through the grill of the heater, you could see the flame flickering there behind that grill. There was a little hole in the grill. The flame was out of reach, but my friend and I, we found that if we, we snapped a, a, a bristle off my dad's old corn broom that he kept in the shop, it was just long enough that you could reach it through that little hole in the grill and catch the flame. So... Listen, I was old enough to understand that playing with fire was dangerous. And I certainly was old enough to know that this was forbidden. But my buddy and I, we turned the lights off and we took turns sticking these little straws through the grill and catching the flame and pulling it out and watching the straw burn down to our fingers. And, and uh, we would shake it out and drop it on the floor. We found some great delight, some some interest in this flame, this fire. 
is playing with fire. My mom, far too astute to ignore the silence coming from the basement where two eight-year-olds are supposed to be playing, um, and snuck down the stairs. And as she, as she turned the corner into the room, she flipped on the light. And, and we knew instantly we had been exposed, we, we were caught. I don't remember all the consequences for that indiscretion, but I know my friend was sent home immediately. And, uh, and I know that I, I paid some price for my misdemeanor, but it, it points out to me that this, this tendency for the darkness is, is somehow ingrained in our hearts, in our minds. It's in the minds of our natures that we like the darkness, particularly we like the darkness when we're doing things that we ought not to be doing. We, we like the darkness when we're engaged in illicit or illegal activities. We, we have a bunch of terms that we use in our society that kind of uh, point out this kind of tendency in our heart. We have terms like black market. We, we call a deal that perhaps isn't quite above board. We call it shady. It's a shady deal. First, the darkness that we prefer when we're doing things we ought not to do, a deal done under the table, a backroom deal. These are, these are expressions that convey this idea that men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil, the Bible says. And so when we're doing things that we shouldn't be doing, we like to do them in a way that's hidden away. It's been this way from the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against the Lord and ate of the fruit that they were not to eat, what did they do? They hid themselves in the garden. The Lord came by in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve looked for the darkness. They looked for the shade. They looked to be hidden away. They didn't want the Lord to see. Why? Because they had done something that was evil. Men love darkness rather than light. There is a contrast here then between love for the darkness and love for the light. We might say that we like the light, and often we do like the light. I, I know that coming from the home building business, um, you know, it's common when you go into a new place, you're looking for a place to buy or a place to rent, you go in, you just oh, lots of light. I like all the windows. Wonderful. We want light. But when we begin to be involved in things that we know we shouldn't be involved in, all of a sudden we want to draw the curtains, don't we? We want to close out the world. This is our nature. And our preferences, our preferences towards either the light or the darkness speak to all around about the integrity of our actions. Our preference for the darkness is evidence of our guilt. It reveals our aversion to being exposed. And like children playing with fire, we, we prefer that our misdeeds be hidden and concealed. We want to hide the evidence. God calls us to be children of the light. We read in Colossians 1, 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we read, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. The Lord calls us out of the darkness and into the light. The Lord calls us to walk as children of the light. And I believe that that means many things, but one of the things that it means is that we are to be people of integrity. We are to be living in ways that we can shine a light on them and not be ashamed. We are to guard our conduct and our behavior as children of the light and not as children of the darkness. So love number one, men love darkness rather than light, a contrast between love for the light and love for the darkness. Turn with me over to chapter 12 in John's gospel. John chapter 12, love number two. I'm going to read in verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. That is, they believed in Jesus Christ. And that's a tremendous statement, that many believed in Christ. Even among the religious leaders of the day, many believed in Christ. This passage that we're reading comes at the end of the Lord's earthly ministry. The next chapter in John's gospel takes us to the upper room, the night before the Lord went to the cross. And so as a summary of all that the Lord has done, John makes this statement that after the Lord's three years of earthly ministry, there were many who believed in him, including many from among the rulers who believed in him. But read on. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Love number two, love of the praise of men. The verse brings to our attention the contrast then between love for the praise of men and love for the praise of God. It's a challenge for us. We might sit here today and think, well, certainly we are among those who look for the praise of God and not for the praise of men. But I have to tell you that as I, I look at my own heart and I challenge you to look at your own, I'm going to suggest that we all can be infected to some degree by this appeal for the praise of men. There is just one single word that I think of in this regard that kind of encapsulates the root of this. It's called the word reputation. We're concerned about our reputation. We want to guard our reputation. Now, let me ask you. How is your testimony? How does your testimony stand up when you know that the people around you, at work, at school, in the neighborhood, in the community, 
when you know that the people around you are not going to respect or accept the position you hold with regard to faith, with regard to Jesus Christ, with regard to being a Christian, a follower of the Lord. How does your testimony stand when you're in a group of people who are opposed to the Lord and to Christian things and to the things of the word of God? Can you say that you are never influenced by those pressures? How do we in this world seek to fashion our reputation? Here we have an example of many of the rulers who believed in him, but they would not confess him. I want to pause for a moment and remind you about what the, the epistle to the Romans says about salvation. That if we believe with our hearts and confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. Salvation, you see, is more than just a simple believing that something happens. It's a change in life. It's a change in direction. It's a conviction of the heart that caused you to stand up and say, he is my Lord. He is my Savior. These rulers believed in him, but they were not willing to confess him. They were not willing to commit to him. Why? Lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They feared the consequences. They feared the repercussions. They feared what people would think. And so they would not stand up for the Lord. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. I think of Nicodemus as an example. He was one of these rulers. One of these rulers who believed. I don't know what Nicodemus's eternal state is, I don't know. I know that he was a secret disciple of the Lord. Nicodemus is mentioned three times in John's gospel. Each time his name is mentioned, there is this appendage. It was he who came to Jesus by night. He is the one who came to Jesus by night. He came to Jesus by night because he didn't want people to know about his belief in the Lord. We find Nicodemus again, in John chapter 7, when the religious leaders, the authorities sent officials, officers out to arrest the Lord, the council was, was uh, determined to get rid of this opposition that they saw in Lord Jesus Christ. And they sent their officers out to arrest and the officers went out and he was teaching. I believe the context is in the temple area. And he was teaching there. And the officers who were there to arrest him listened to the things that he said, and they marveled. They wondered at the things that Jesus said. They were impressed by the power of his speech, by the wisdom with which he spoke. They went back to the Sanhedrin, to the council, and the council said, where is he? What are you doing? Why isn't he with you? Why didn't you bring him? They said, never did a man speak like this man. Remember that in John chapter 7? Nicodemus was there. Nicodemus was listening to all of this. The council turned against their officers and said, what, what is this? Why haven't you brought him in? Do, do you see any of the, the Pharisees believing in him? At this point, 
Nicodemus musters just enough courage to speak up and say a sentence. Nicodemus says, uh, is it right for us to make a judgment before we've heard anything from him? And now the council turns their attention away from the officers who failed to bring him in and focus on Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus is in the spotlight. Is his testimony going to stand up? They say, what, are you also from Galilee? And they begin to hurl abuse on Nicodemus. And I find it interesting that we hear no more from Nicodemus at that point. It is evident that at that point, Nicodemus shut his mouth. Okay, said enough. I'll just shrink back into the shadows. He was afraid of what would happen. We find Nicodemus again after the crucifixion. We came with Joseph of Arimathea to bury the Lord after, after the people had dispersed, after the crowd is gone. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come. It says they were secret disciples of the Lord. It says that specifically there in the, at the end of John's gospel in chapter 21. They came to take the body of the Lord. They were secret disciples. We respond sometimes in fear, don't we? Sometimes we can succumb to the pressures of our society. And we are influenced by some fear that we have. Let me ask you, what is that fear? Why is our testimony affected when people put pressure on us with regard to our faith? Is it some fear that we have of physical repercussions? Are we afraid of some persecution? I can tell you that's not the case, is it? We're not, we're not worried somebody's going to beat us. There are places in the world, of course, we recognize, don't we, where people who stand up for Christ face that kind of severe persecution. But here today, in our society, at least for now, that isn't the case. We're not going to be arrested and taken off to prison. What is it that we fear? How, why is it that our testimony is impacted in this way? Is it fear for our reputation? I suggest it is. Perhaps it is coming back to this root cause that we love the praise of men. And standing up for Christ will have an impact on how people think about us. One day we will stand before the Lord. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one day you're going to stand before the Lord. As people come before the Lord, there will be those to whom the Lord says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. What is more important to us today, the praise of men or the praise of God? I pray that the Lord would help me to be strong in my testimony. And that he help you to stand up for him, despite what people might think, despite what people might say, despite the pressures that we face in our world today that we would stand up for him because we love the praise of God more than the praise of men. Sadly, the tendency of the human heart is to love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Let's go on a little further. John, John chapter 15, John chapter 15, or number three. 
just want to read verse 19. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Powerful language from the Lord here. But the third other love that I see in this verse is love for its own. Love for its own. The world loves its own. This is in contrast to the love of God who loves all. This is in contrast to the instruction of God that we are to love all. But the world loves its own. Society can exert tremendous pressure on us to conform to its standards, can't it? Society wants us to be like them. People around us like us to be unified like them. You know, there is a great movement today that we are to embrace diversity and celebrate it. But I see a paradox here because if you if you hold to a particular standard, then you're not embraced and you're not accepted. This tendency that we see in the world to love its own is seen in many ways. There are great pressures at the level of the family, at the level of the community, at the level of society, at the level of nationally, we see tremendous pressures to conform, to be like everyone else, conform to the accepted standards of the norms. People will love us if we are like them. This tendency to love our own is, is the root of many evils in our society. We see it evident in the many nationalist parties that are coming up around the world today in different places, different countries. We see it as the, the stem of, of uh, racism. We see it in white supremacist movements. Love for one's own. It's a scourge, really. I think the uh, war in Ukraine is an evidence of it. I don't claim to be an expert by any means on the causes of the war of Ukraine, but I've certainly listened to the news and I can recall some of the commentaries who explain that from Russia's side, they want to ensure that the people of Ukraine are seen as as like them, like Russians, they're not different. And their anger is that the Ukrainians are, are seeking to make themselves distinct people, different from themselves. Whether it's in Ukraine or in other wars that we see around the globe, hatred is used as a tool by Satan. People love their own, but they hate those who are different than themselves. It's a lot easier to incite your soldiers 
to go and do battle against the enemy, if you can paint the enemy as despicable, as depraved. There's a phrase that is used for this called dehumanization. And if you can make your people, the people of your nation, think that your enemy is somehow less than human, it's easier for you to incite them to support you in your battle against them. And so political leaders will use this tool, love for their own, hatred for others. There is this tendency. How different than what the Lord taught? How different than what the Lord teaches? The Lord who says in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may son be sons of your Father in heaven. The Lord calls us to love our enemies, to love all, to be different than the world. There's a couple of lessons that we might take from this. Lesson number one is that we are to love those around us. We are to love those that are different than ourselves. We are to love all the people of the world. The Lord loved sinners. He didn't love the sin, but he loved the sin. And he loved people that were different. And we are to love. Second lesson that we can learn from this is simply what the Lord was emphasizing in this verse. That we can expect that the world will hate us if we stand up for the Lord. There is going to be adversity. There is going to be persecution. There is going to be a wave against which we must battle if we stand up for the Lord. Because the world loves its own doesn't love those who are different than themselves. We stand up and be different. We will see adversity from the world. Let's go back to chapter 12 for just a minute. We'll go to other love number four in chapter 12. Verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Other love number four, love for your life. This passage contrasts our love for physical life with our love for spiritual life. What are the things in life that are of the greatest value? What are the things in your life that are of the greatest value? You might think, right off the bat of things in a monetary sense, the house, the car, you know, the investments. I don't know what, what you might think of as what has high value in life. But as you mull about it in your mind, I think you will soon come to understand that those aren't the things that hold the highest value, are they? What are the things that hold the highest value in your life? My grandmother, my mother's mother, grew up in the Depression era on the prairies during the great dust bowls. My mother's mother, my grandmother and her husband, my grandfather, endured a lot of poverty, a lot of need. They, they lived with very little. They struggled to get by. 
Eventually, my grandfather found work as a mechanic in the city of Calgary. They moved into town. They're able to buy a little half-finished basement structure on a little lot in Calgary. And uh, over the time, they, they built a house on that foundation, a little two-bedroom bungalow in which they raised three daughters. Know that God would have us to enjoy life. He gives us his life. And we are to enjoy the time that he gives us here. But how better it would be to be known as someone who loved eternal life, who loved heaven as their home. Not this life. The things in this life are temporal. They are temporary. They are here today. They are gone tomorrow. You don't take them with you when you go. How important it is that we treasure up for ourselves things in heaven. Things that are going to last. What are the things that are important in your life? Are the things that they enjoy now? The toys, the ATV, the cottage, the retirement plan. Are these the things that we enjoy? What is important to us in this life? The Lord wants us to focus on eternal things, eternal life. It's Jim Elliot, the missionary, martyr. Who famously said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The Lord said it this way, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his own soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The Lord calls us to evaluate things in this world differently. And to recognize the value and the importance of eternal things. To love eternal life above this physical life. Love for life. Well, we have to move along quickly here. Let's go to chapter 15 again in verse 13. Passage that was read a little earlier, I believe. Here we read about another love. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, I no longer, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Here we have a contrast between love for friends and love for servants. The Lord says, no greater love has this than a man to lay down his life for his friends. <clears throat> we, of course, have great respect for individuals, heroes that we read about or hear about or come up in the news who run into a burning building to save somebody that's in peril or jump into the water to save someone that's drowning, put their own life at risk in order to save somebody. We have great respect for that. We think of that as a great love, really, don't we, in a sense? But I don't think that's what the Lord is talking about here when he speaks about those who will give up their life for a friend. 
as as commendable as those actions are, they they are done kind of on the basis of adrenaline. They're done on the spur of the moment. Somebody jumps in to do something heroic. They do it not thinking that they're going to die doing it. They do it with the uh, thought in their mind that they're going to run into this building. They're going to save somebody, and they're both going to emerge alive. They they recognize there's danger, of course, but they're not giving their life up to save somebody intentionally. What the Lord is referring to here is somebody who knowingly, willingly, premeditatedly makes a decision to give up their life so that a friend might live. That is a far rarer love. We see it very seldom in this world. It happens, but it's a rare thing. Love for a friend. The verse reminds us, it tells us that love comes in a scale, doesn't it? There's different degrees of love. Some we love dearly. Some we love, but, you know, not, not so much. Sure, we love them. We're not going to give up our life for them. The Lord puts it this way. There, there's love for servants and there's love for friends, right? We do more for the friend than we would for the servant. We might have uh, good feelings toward the servant. We might think highly of them, but give up our life for them? No, not so much. We might even say that we love them. And it caused me to stop for a moment and, and just ask this question, what is our relationship to Jesus Christ? What is our position with him? Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter, Apostle James wrote epistles, and they were clear what their position was when they introduced their letters, for example, to the Philippians. Paul, bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are servants of Jesus Christ. We are his servants. But the Lord doesn't treat us like servants. He doesn't love us like servants. In this Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're reading, or this, sorry, the upper room ministry that we're reading about here in John chapter 14, we're reading from just hours earlier or moments earlier, the Lord had spoken to these disciples and he had said, that you call me master and Lord, and so I am, he says. These apostles were servants of the Lord, and they knew it, and he knew it. But now he says, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. But he goes far beyond that. He lays down his life for them. First, he takes a towel and washes their feet. He lays down his life. He loves them. Christ loves us while we were sinners. He loved us while we were still without strength. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God to us. <coughs> Lessons we might learn. From John's reference to love for friends, love for friends. 
John chapter 13 and verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Let you also love one another. Love number six, love for one another. Here is the love we are commanded by God. Here's the love the Lord Jesus Christ gave, and he calls it a new commandment, a new commandment that he has given us that we are to love one another. Here the contrast is between our love for one another and Christ's love for us. How are we to love one another? We are to love one another as Christ loved us. Wow. As I have loved you, you also love one another. How has Christ loved us? Well, Think about it. When the crowds were hungry, he fed them. When they gathered with their sick and their lame, he, he healed them. The Lord loved. When Mary and Martha were grieving with Lazarus, the brother who was dead, they were grieving over the death of their brother. He came and wept with them. How did Jesus love? gave himself on the cross for us. We are to love one another as Christ loved us. The bar is high. The standard is great. This is not a commandment that we are to have feelings of affection for one another. Biblical love is not an emotion. It's action. And we are to love one another as Christ loves. We are be, to be engaged in sacrificial giving, it's imperative. It is essential for our testimony. And this, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And so we testify to our faith in God and to our fellowship with him by our love for one another. Lastly, we close with this in chapter 21, love number seven. Verse 15. Simon Peter and the Lord are walking on the beach. They have, the disciples have just come back. They've been fishing. They had uh, been waiting for the Lord or waiting for something there in Galilee by the sea. The Lord did not appear. They decided to go out fishing and caught nothing. The Lord appeared on the beach, told them to throw their nets in. Again, they would catch fish and they did. They were amazed. They had some fellowship with the Lord there by the sea. Lord says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Verse 15. Do you love me more than these? Seventh love, love for these. What is these? Some have suggested that looking around and considering the context, these might refer to the fish, the boats, the nets, the business. The life they have lived, the life they were apparently returning to here. You love the Lord more than these. I'm inclined to think 
that these is a reference more to these 12, these, these disciples that had walked with the Lord for three and a half years, who had been with him day and night, who had listened to his testimony, his ministry, and seen his miracles. They had grown as a family. They were the best of buddies. They were friends. They were family. Or says, do you love me more than these? Here we have a contrast between our love for each other and our love for the Lord. It's not that we are not to love each other, far be it. We are to love one another. That's just what we just read. Love number six, love for one another. A commandment the Lord gave us. What the Lord says now is that you must love me more. Primarily, our love is for the Lord. It is a first prominence that we love the Lord. Now, ironically, I think, how is it that our love for the Lord is demonstrated? Our love for the Lord is seen in our love for one another. That comes out in the, in the text right here. When Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, the Lord says, feed my sheep three times over. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, care for my mothers. Our love for the Lord is displayed in the way that we care for one another. But it is critical that we have the priorities straight, that we have the order right. Our love in serving one another is not motivated solely by our feelings towards each other. I don't serve you just because I love you. I serve you because I love the Lord. That's critically important because it helps us. Sometimes we find that our brothers and sisters can be somewhat unlovable. How can I say that? Or less than lovely. Sometimes they're a little prickly. Sometimes they're not, you know, easiest to embrace. And if we are caring for them and showing love to them just because of our affinity to them, we are going to fail. We serve them not because of our love for them alone, although we serve them because we love them, but primarily we serve them because we love the Lord. And the Lord calls us to love one another. We must love the Lord above all else. Love for the Lord is seen in our care for one another. It must take precedence over all other. We have a contrast between our love for each other and our love for the Lord. So here we have it, seven other loves from John's gospel. Pray that this might have been of some help as you think about it over the days to come. And that we might live more fruitfully for him as we think about these things. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word, and we ask for your blessing on it as we think about it in time ahead. We thank you for its wise counsel and instruction. We pray for your blessing as we separate in Jesus' name. Amen.